me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to take a break from Ephesians. We're going to look at this incredible resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, which ends with one of my favorite verses of the Bible. And I want to set up our section by reading the question that someone asked in verse 35. So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? All right, let's flip ahead to verse 50 for the second half of Paul's answer. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I just read in Romans chapter 8 that we are in the fellowship of your trinity. That if God is for us, who can be against us? That Jesus is alive and he dwells inside of us. That your spirit broods over the darkness even in our hearts and gives us groanings and prayers that we can't even pray ourselves. If that's happening right now, then this is going to be a fruitful 25 minutes together. Your spirit is going to press in and shape us and change us into the image of the very Son who is risen and who dwells with us. Praise your name, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen. He is risen. All right, y'all. That was a test. I'm testing you six weeks after Easter to see if the resurrection is still as alive in your hearts today as it is in heaven. And the answer is no. But that's okay. That's why Jesus is here in our midst. You know, we preached in Ephesians most recently on the family, the roles of the family. What does the husband and wife, what do the father and the children do within the family? And we came to an end of that little section in Ephesians 5 and 6. That happened to land last week. Today is the last day that we observe, the sixth week of Easter. It's also Memorial Day weekend, and so 
you've got these three strands coming together, I think, providentially. Family and death and the Easter resurrection. And I want to see how our passage ties these three together for us this morning. If there is no resurrection of the dead, like if Christ really didn't rise from the dead, he just rose in the hearts and minds of the disciples, but his physical body stayed dead, and if he's dead, that means there's no resurrection for us, that that when we die, we just fall asleep and we don't dream, and we never wake up again, if that is true, we are wasting our time talking about family. If there is no resurrection from the dead, I pity the wife who strives to submit to her husband. I pity the husband who lays down to die and serve his wife. I pity the father who is laboring to bring his children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. I pity the children who are seeking to obey their parents in the Lord. How sad and how pitiful. Paul says, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are to be most pitied. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, and we stay dead forever. But if there is a resurrection, like if Jesus Christ is alive, if he really got up from the dead, if his physical resurrected body was really seen by witnesses, if he is exalted at the right hand of the Father, if he is present here in our midst, if he has gone to prepare a place for us that we will dwell with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth, then I pity the family that does not begin living the eternal abundant life today. Who do I pity today? Is there a resurrection? Because if there is, I pity any man, woman, or child who does not lay hold of this abundant life in Christ Jesus. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves in our passage this morning. Somebody is asking Paul, a very simple question, and I think it's antagonistic, and so Paul kind of chides him for this, but look at verse 35. This is the question that gets the whole back half of the passage rolling. Somebody asks, okay, you're talking about the resurrection of the dead, but how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, that's a great question. If that was asked sincerely, that's a great question. And it kind of reminds me of a lot of the questions that people asked Jesus when he was on earth. You keep talking about this kingdom that's coming and what's going to happen after death and life after death. But, but what does this actually physically, literally mean? What's going to happen with our bodies? What's going to happen with our marriages? Sounds like a great question. And people want to know, how does this work? What can I expect? You know, I remember as a child sitting in church, hearing from my pastor that heaven is like an eternal worship service. Now, as a five-year-old in a wooden pew with a sermon that's already gone on for what feels like eternity, 
I thought heaven is my worst nightmare. I'm going to sit here forever listening to this guy talk. I thought it was terrible. But some of us have just kind of misconceptions of heaven. We've seen cartoons of heaven. We've heard people talk about heaven. Some of us have in our minds that, that we leave our bodies and we become these ethereal spirits that dwell within the clouds, strumming harps with Jesus, dressed in loincloths, something like cherub angels. I mean, some of us have these visions and we've seen these cartoons. But that's not the, how the Bible talks about heaven at all. The Bible says that heaven is the new heavens and the new earth. That where we will live with God forever will be a redeemed, restored, beautiful, earthy, physical creation without sin or shame or the fall. Revelation says that a new Jerusalem, a city is being prepared in heaven in the dimension of God right now and that will descend onto this new earth and we will come in and out of this city worshiping God in this new earth forever. I love hearing the prophets talk about the new heavens and the new earth. They're, they're so far away from even Jesus' coming that, that, that you're watching like a black and white television version of what Jesus is going to promise. But when you get to the prophets, they say a time is coming with plants and animals and trees. There's going to be farming. There's going to be feasting. We're going to eat. We're going to drink. We're going to be with God and we're going to be at peace forever. That's the vision of heaven we get in the prophets. Now friends, I haven't quoted the Broadway play Hamilton a single time this year. So I need to make up for lost time. There's a great scene that gets me every time in this play when George Washington has finished his term as president and instead of running again, he's going to step down from the presidency and so he sings the song one last time. And I sorely wish I could sing because I'm not going to. But this is what he says. Everyone shall sit under his own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make him afraid. They'll be safe in the nation we've made. Can you imagine? No war, no drama, no shame, no antagonism. Everything's restored. Everyone has a piece of wealth, a vine and a fig tree that they enjoy before God in peace. That is plucked straight from Micah 4.4. It was one of George Washington's favorite verses. He quoted it often in his correspondence with others. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will embody this very physical, earthy, natural world yet it will be renewed and flourishing. That's what's in store for the believer. This person may understand that, but their specific question is about our bodies. Okay, so if this is coming and this is what the world is going to look like, what about our bodies? To have a brand spanking new new heavens and new earth, and keep these old, frail bodies would be like doing a kitchen renovation and keeping your old laminate countertops. 
I say that because we're doing a kitchen renovation and we're keeping our old laminate countertop. (laughs) But Paul answers, fear not. I don't roll like the Gentinos do. God knows how to take what is temporary, that is the world's, and make it eternal, which is the new world to come. And if he knows how to do that, take the old world and redeem it and make it the new world, he knows how to take an old body that's physical and failing, and he knows how to change it to be a new and eternal body. That's what he basically says in this paragraph before ours. Verses 42 through 49 says that God takes our bodies, this is what he calls them, this is what you felt when you got up this morning, something that is perishable, dishonored, Weak, natural, that's, that's this, that's our bodies this morning. And he's going to change them into something imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. God knows how to take what is temporary, what is fleeting, what is failing, and make it glorious and perfect. He does that with creation. He's going to do that with our bodies. You get that context and you're ready for our paragraph in verse 51. He's saying, there's the difference between those who die before Jesus comes and those who are standing here like us right now. If he were to return at any moment, here's what's going to happen. I tell you a mystery. Not all of us are going to sleep, not everybody's going to die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we who are still alive standing here will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, the mortal, what is immortality, then shall come to pass what is written Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's got no teeth. This is the victory of God in Easter. What is old becomes new. God takes these perishable bodies riddled with sin and with shame and he makes new, sinless, spotless Eternal bodies. Can you imagine putting on a body that has never tasted sin? Never felt the curse. Doesn't even know what shame is like. Has no history of that in its actual being. In a moment, at the trumpet... We shall receive these new bodies. Now Paul gets to the end of human language here. He's just like on the precipice of being able to understand what's happening. And so he backs up a little bit and he says, it's a mystery. That's as much as I can say this thing is a mystery. We're still us in the new heavens and the new earth. We're just going to be a different us in the new heavens and the new earth. As far as we can tell, we're going to keep our gender on that side of heaven as we have it now. We know that we're going to keep our race. We know that we're going to keep something of our age. If Jesus is any indication, we're going to keep something of our appearance so that people can actually recognize us in heaven. 
That's really interesting to me because of the way that Jesus' physical appearance was described in Isaiah. Isaiah 53.2 tells us that Jesus was actually not particularly handsome. Forget every painting of a white, handsome Jesus you have ever seen. Isaiah says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. When Jesus rose from the dead in his new resurrected body and began appearing to his disciples, nobody was confused. Nobody said, Oh my goodness. Is that Tom Cruise? Like, this guy is gorgeous. I mean, he's a beautiful man. Is this somebody else? No, everybody recognized that this same man that they had seen in his unhandsome body was now resurrected and appeared before them, but they still recognized exactly what he looked like. So either in our resurrected bodies, it is beautified within the boundaries of recognition, like a little nip here and a little tuck there, and we're kind of still us, but we're the better version of ourselves, or else maybe in the resurrection, every one of us forgets why we spent our whole lives enslaved to our appearance. Imagine that. Either way, God knows how to take what is temporary and make it eternal. He does that with our bodies. He takes old bodies. You can trust him with your body. He's going to make it new and glorious because he loves doing that kind of stuff. Because Jesus started to do that kind of stuff when he was on earth. And God is going to complete that kingdom project once and for all. Well, here's the point of why I wanted to draw in this passage and why we read all the way to the end of this passage. Because if God can do this with our bodies, he can also do it with the deeds done in the body. If God knows how to do this with our physical bodies, take them and make them eternal, he actually knows how to do that with everything we do in the Christian life. Take the deeds we do in this body, no matter how frail or fleeting or tainted with sin they are, and he knows how to make them also eternal and last forever. After you hear this whole chapter on the resurrection, how God is going to make everything new, we kind of anticipate a different ending to this chapter. We think, okay, God is going to take away the old and he's going to make something new, and so maybe it doesn't actually matter what we do in the body. Like God is going to take at the the last day every screw up that we've done in the body and he's going to unscrew it so that we can live together in harmony forever with him. So maybe the things that we're doing in the body don't matter so much because God knows how to take those things and, and make them perfect anyway. It reminds me of like letting our kids paint their bedroom, right? You've got everything set up, but then you give them a paintbrush and you let them just kind of do whatever they're going to do. And it doesn't matter if they write their name or they play tic-tac-toe or, or they paint one wall and get tired and leave. It doesn't matter what they do because you're going to hit that thing with several coats of semi-gloss and, and nobody's going to know the difference. Nobody knows that they were there and made a mess of the project. More to the purpose of our study of family and Ephesians. If God is going to remake heaven and earth, if I'm not even going to be married in heaven, 
And it's not even clear what kind of relationship I'm going to have with my kids. Why am I pouring so much time and energy and heartache and sacrifice into family? Like if I'm just making sloppy marks on the wall that God is going to come back over and repaint the entire thing, why even bother? Why such waste? And, and when we begin to think that in our minds, we actually realize that rejecting the resurrection as an unbeliever and misunderstanding the resurrection as a misinformed believer actually end up leading us to the exact same place. If there's no resurrection from the dead, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die and we stay dead and it doesn't matter. If there is a resurrection that resets everything and changes and undoes everything that we've done, then let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die and God's going to reset everything and it will be perfect again. It doesn't matter what you do in the body in either of these interpretations. But that couldn't be farther from Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, and whenever you see a therefore, you import what you had read in the context prior. So in Paul's mind, he's saying, therefore, my beloved brethren, since Jesus is risen from the dead, since Jesus is alive and active today, since death has been swallowed up in victory, and since sin has lost its sting, since Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead for all who trust in him, since Jesus has put a plan in motion that no one or nothing can thwart, since Jesus animates all good things that happen within the church family and our biological families by the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, since you and I are bought and paid for, cleansed, secured, and can be referred to in passing with the title we have sought our entire lives, my beloved, therefore, my beloved brethren, I want you to be steadfast. I want you to be immovable. I want you always, always to be working and striving with his power, abounding in the work of the Lord, because I'm going to tell you something crazy. Any labor done in the Lord is not in vain. Family is hard work. Family is discouraging work. Family can feel like fruitless, thankless, fleeting work. You just say the word family. And it carries with it a world of pain and regret. How I've carried myself as a wife, or as a husband, or a child, or a parent... But thanks be to God, it is impossible 
to do vain work in the Lord. God can take what is temporary and and frail and chaff-like and fleeting. It's just so wispy that if you sneeze, all your work is gone. He knows how to take that like he knows how to take this world and these bodies and make it eternal. God knows how to take fumbling spouses and parents and children and make their work eternally significant in the Lord. That's the promise to every believer. Friends, I hope as we march through Ephesians 5 and 6, this whole section on the family that you saw Christ shine so brightly at the center of the church and of the home. Ephesians 5.21, the church submits to each other out of reverence for Christ. There he is. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. There he is. Husbands, love their wives as Christ loves the church. He's there too. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. We bring our children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Christ, Lord, Christ, Lord, Lord. In every square inch of our biological families and our church family, Christ is present, powerful, stands at the center and beckons everything we do in thought, word, or deed back to himself in worship for his glory. There is not a date night. There is not the changing of a dirty diaper. There's not a backward family devotion Not an emptying of the dishwasher, not a hard conversation, not a discipline with a child, not a tear, not a prayer, not an apology that can possibly be done in vain in the Lord because the Lord himself is eternal and he makes bodies and deeds eternal for his glory. I suspect that when we see him face to face, him in his resurrected body, and us with our resurrected bodies, we will not miss, we will not regret, we will not even begin to count the cost of a single deed done in the Lord. Let's pray together. Even this worship service done with fumbling and frail people, dragging ourselves out of bed and with your community, getting scurrying kids to pay attention, trying to listen ourselves through the entire thing and sing as loud as we can in worship, even our fumbling offering this morning will stand forever because you, Lord Jesus, stand forever. Let us be steadfast and immovable. Let us abound in the work of the Lord. Let us never forget that our toil in the Lord cannot possibly be done in vain. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In Jesus' name.